Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. Now, often a question that we gets asked about Christianity and whether someone should believe in Christianity or not, and maybe this is a struggle for you even, is what does this ancient text about an ancient people have to do with me? When we look at the problems of people in the Bible, it can often seem like we have nothing in common with the people that we're reading about. We're reading people, about people from an agricultural culture, oftentimes that were nomadic. It seems very different than what we're experiencing here in the 21st century in Boston, and we think, well, we've evolved beyond that. We've progressed beyond the problems that they had. Uh, we're, we're doing better than they have. We, we have AI that does everything for us now. Like, we're living in a better world. Um, but it's easy for us to give into what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, uh, which is the idea that we are better because we are just further along, that we've progressed beyond where people behind us were. But if you take an honest look at the Bible, what you begin to realize is that we have the same problems that they have, but just different circumstances. The same root problems that they were struggling with are, are there, even though they had different cultural pressures, because at the root right now, just like the nation of Israel, just like what they were facing in Isaiah 30, um, we face anxiety. We, we have moments of anger. You're worried about your job. You're worried about war. Uh, you're seeing what's happening in Israel, and maybe not even knowing what to do with that. Which, what, what, who should I side with? I see injustice on both sides. Um, I, I don't know what to do with the darkness that I see in the world. So that's exactly what the people in the book of Isaiah were experiencing. They're experiencing the exact same struggles, but just for different reasons. And this is why Advent is so important because what it does is it draws us into the longing of the people in the Bible. It draws us into the waiting of the people in the Bible who are waiting for God to come and give an answer, who are waiting for God to come and to help them. And this longing that runs as a thread throughout the entire Old Testament is that there was a Messiah coming. There was a Savior coming who was going to come and make all of these things right, make all of these things New And what we see at Christmas in Advent as we celebrate is that Jesus is that Messiah. Jesus is the one who came to make all of these things right. And so as the people of Israel waited for a Savior, we enter into that longing as a people who are waiting for the Savior to come again. We wait with longing for Jesus to come. And though our circumstances may be different, every single one of us wants hope. Every single one of us wants to be loved. Every single one of us wants joy and peace. And so during Advent this year, we're going to be entering into this longing by looking partly at the book of Isaiah and really examining the four names that are given as descriptors of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 9. You can see this on the screen. Isaiah 9 verse 6, one of the great promises of the Messiah. It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we're going to be unpacking one of those names each week over the next four weeks. And the first of these this morning that we're going to unpack is the idea that Jesus is a wonderful counselor. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 30, as Naomi read a few minutes ago, 
looking at verses 18 through 21. But as, before we get really deep into this, I want you to just look at the end of verse 18, the very end of it. It says, blessed are those who wait for him. Blessed are all those who wait for him. What you and I are waiting for, what you and I are longing for, what you and I are ultimately hoping for is this Messiah. It is Jesus. It is God to come. And the key to us seeing how Jesus is a wonderful counselor is learning to wait with hope for his coming. Psalm 130 verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. When you're waiting for the end of your anxiety, you're waiting for the Lord. When you're waiting for the end of depression, you're waiting for the Lord. When you're waiting for resolution to a situation that doesn't seem like it's going to resolve, you're ultimately waiting for the Lord. And what makes Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 curious is that we also see the Lord is waiting too. At the beginning it says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. God is waiting with wonderful counsel to be gracious to you. He comes with this counsel to give you hope at your deepest moment. And this morning, we're going to have the nerdiest Sunday we've ever had at City on a Hill because we're going to get a second Lord of the Rings mention, okay? Um, so, nerds, Matt is so excited about this, I can tell already. Um, and so if you've ever read the Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, uh, in the two towers, there is this battle at Helm's Deep. And Helm's Deep is a giant mountain fortress in the kingdom of Rohan. And they have uh, holed up in there. The armies of Mordor, the orcs, are, are coming and they're breaking the walls. And there's this promise that they were given by Gandalf, the great white wizard, who said, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day at dawn, look to the east. At the moment when it got the darkest, at the moment when it got the bleakest, at the moment when it seemed like the battle was lost, they were told, look to the east, look to the light that is coming. At the darkest moment, hope comes. Israel is at its darkest moment. They're, they're facing impending doom, an impending doom of their own making, that for generations they have thrown themselves into idolatry, they walk after false gods, They've given into their own selfishness, um, injustice and greed of their own making. The situation is bleak, and they, they see that Babylon is at the doorstep. The kingdom is shrinking. Their power and influence and their borders are shrinking. Other nations are threatening them, and Babylon is threatening to take them off into exile. And you can imagine, even though the circumstances are different, it's all the same emotions you experience. They're afraid. They're anxious. They're wondering when the next shoe is going to drop. They feel hopeless. They feel despair. And that's the moment that you look for hope the most. And your situation may not be Babylon at the doorstep, but it may be the bill collector at the doorstep. It may be a relationship on the brink at the doorstep. It may be your anxiety at the doorstep. And collectively, as a culture, it's as Harvard professor Harold Berman once said, we are collectively on the edge of a nervous breakdown. The constant news cycle, the flood of information, it's not a unique thing to us, and it was not a unique thing to the people of Israel because every generation of men and women have longed for a wonderful counselor. We're all looking for a counselor, someone or something to help us through our darkest moments. And the question this morning is, where do you look for hope when you feel hopeless? We're all looking, and what this morning's passage shows us is why you need a wonderful counselor. 
why you need a not just any counselor, but a wonderful counselor. And when we look at that word wonderful in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it is the Hebrew word pele, uh, which means miracle or incomprehensible. The type of counsel that you and I need is a, a counsel that is a miracle. It's completely incomprehensible. It's, it's the type of counsel that is so far above our ability to understand its working that it's a perspective, it's a wisdom from above, like we looked at in the Gospel of John a few weeks ago. It's a wisdom and a counsel that you and I do not have. It's the type of wisdom and counsel that we need from the one who created us. Now, the greatest debate in human history is how you pronounce the three letters G-I-F. Okay, now how many of you are team GIF? Okay, how many of you are team GIF? Okay, a few of you are honest. Now, peanut butter. So, Stephen Earl Wilhite, who created the G-I-F, said it's actually GIF, like peanut butter. Now, I think he's wrong. Um, the internet disagrees with him, but it's amazing that the one who created it, who could actually give us counsel on how to say that word, we all, dis most of us disagree with. Why would we go against the guy who created it? And in the same way, you and I will look for counsel in places other than the Lord gives counsel. We look to the wrong places for counsel instead of going to the one who created us, who could tell us and give us guidance on how to live in the world that he created. And this is why chapter 30, verse 1, calls us stubborn children. Like stubborn children, we carry out a plan, but not the Lord's plan. You and I are schemers. I'm a schemer. You're a schemer. We're all trying to look for different devices to help ourselves get out of our own problems. And in doing so, we are like stubborn children. We are like the toddler trying to put on their shoes saying, I do it. That is all of us. And when we finally realize that we can't do it on our own, we, as verse 30, uh, chapter 30, verse 1 says, we make an alliance, but not of my spirit. We realize we can't go it alone. We realize we can't do enough. We realize that once we run out of our own ideas, we've got to come up with some more ideas. And we do what it says here, that they may add sin to sin. When we get into a trouble of our own making, what we often do is just come up with more sinful schemes that just add to our sinfulness. We keep digging the hole deeper instead of looking to God for help. So it'd be like if you were at work and you were making some dishonest or unethical decisions, instead of coming clean and being honest, what we tend to do is we tend to lie about it. We tend to, to blame shift. We lie to cover the lie. We add sin upon sin. And here's where we begin to see how looking for help in the wrong place comes about. We see in chapter 30, verse 2, it says, who, the people, set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now, why was it such a problem to go to Egypt? Egypt was a powerful nation. You have Babylon on the east, you have Egypt on the west, and they're looking to Egypt and they're saying, man, they could possibly help us out of this jam. They could possibly help give us some hope. And we've seen this strategy before. If you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, we saw that when Abraham was fearful that the land was no longer going to provide food, he went where? He went down to Egypt. And Egypt seems to be the place that the people of God continued to go or to long to go every single time things got out of control. And in the same way, you and I look for human solutions to an eternal problem. 
We're looking for a human solution to an eternal problem because they're obvious. They're tangible. They're sitting right in front of us. And so what we do instead of going to the Lord is we'll, we'll go to Google or we'll go to ChatGPT and say, help doing blank. And you can fill in your own blank there. We go to Instagram and we look for five tips how to be more successful or how to, how to lose weight or how to be more beautiful or how to do whatever those things are that we desire. And not that all those things are necessarily wrong, but there's all sorts of wisdom in the world that's trying to help us deal with hopelessness. Wisdom that's telling you to focus on you. Think about yourself. Always put yourself first, even if it means being at the expense of others. You, know, you just need to self-actualize and become what you imagine yourself to be. And if you finally do that, you'll be happy. Do whatever makes you happy. You just need new. You just need better. You just need more. You need to give into the idols of success and love and safety. And what we see here is that even the best human counsel fails. Verse 3, therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Our human plans backfire. They always backfire if they run contrary to God's word. And we see in verse 5 that they cannot profit us, but shame us and disgrace us. They, they don't ultimately work. We have to look to the successful schemes of others and assume that they're going to work for us. I was watching a, a comedian on, on Instagram the other day talking about the kind of Instagram entrepreneur bro. Everybody knows that guy. He always walks, wakes up at 4 a.m. It's always 4 a.m., and there's, he's making fun of this one guy who, he, this guy, would, he's like, I take ice baths at, at like 2.15, I sleep for three minutes, and then I get up, and then I do like a meditation run, which doesn't even sound possible, and I have like, I get into my mind palace to craft my, my best body, and, and we listen to advice like that that we know is not going to help us, and in the same way, we saw the nation of Israel running after mediums and spiritual solutions and what you see in verse 7 is that they are just simply worthless and empty. And when we realize that what we've been looking to to give us hope, to give us counsel, isn't working, we go one of two directions. One is we just give up. You can just despair. Maybe you're there this morning. You've been running to the end of your own plans, and you just feel despair. Or we get anxious and make other rash solutions, and we run to the next guide to fix our problems that are just going to overpromise and underdeliver. And it's such a temptation to rush our own solutions that seem wise to us but are contrary to God's wisdom. And so this morning, where are you looking for help? Where are you looking for counsel? It's so easy to run counter to God's word where it says that he'll satisfy me, but I'm so tempted to look to easy comfort and pleasure instead of the eternal riches of God. The scriptures say that he'll hold me fast, but it's easy for me to look to security and accomplishment or relationships. But we see in verse 8 that there is hope and counsel to be found. That in this, Christ offers us hope and counsel. Verse 8, it says, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book. In other words, write this counsel down because it's good advice that's going to last a really long time. And we see it doesn't just last a long time, but it may, that it may be for the first time to come as a witness forever. That God's wisdom is not just good 3,000 years ago, it's good for today as well. And that's the beauty of God's word is that it is timeless, that it's time-tested, that it's not sub subject to the whims of culture. If you were to look at the cultural norms of 500 years ago, you would wince because they were absolutely abhorrent. 
You were to look at some of the cultural norms of 50 years ago that run counter to God's word. You would go, man, that just seems like a different world that I wouldn't want to live in. It's no different today. There are things culturally that we simply accept that run counter to God's word that are going to end up leading us to suffering. And 50 or 500 years from now, there's going to be a generation looking back on us, a generation of Christians and saying, man, I can't believe that they did or believed those things as a culture. What we see from God's unchanging, timely wisdom and counsel is that he wants you and I to flourish. And we flourish when we wait upon him and we learn to hope in his counsel. Psalm chapter one, verses one through three said, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. We see that God wants to prosper us, that he wants us to to flourish in him. But it's tempting, just like the nation of Israel, to run back to our own counsel, to reject God's counsel. Verse 9, for they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. In other words, tell us what we want to hear. Tell us, tell us what, we want, what we want to hear. We do not believe that God has good for us. Speak to us smooth things that make us feel comfortable. Prophesy illusions. Tell us things that even if they're not true, they make me feel better. Lead the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And we see that this type of thinking, verse 12, leads to disaster. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. That when we give ourselves to the wisdom of the world that runs contrary to the wisdom of God, it leads to disaster. Our choices to reject God leave us broken and shattered. And if you look at verse 14, it makes the description almost like a clay pot that you're trying to get water with. And what we're trying to do with the wisdom of the world is take the shard of of pottery and scoop up some water. Just like we talked about last week in John 4, that we keep running back to the same old wells to scoop up water that will never satisfy us. Now, you're probably thinking, wow, Stephen, this is a really positive Christmas message on hope. Um, We're getting to the hope, I promise. Verse 15, for thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning in rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Return, rest, sit still before God, learn to wait. Have you stopped long enough to quit scheming and planning and hand-wringing and fretting to just simply sit before the Lord and wait? Have you taken the time to just stop and listen and learn and hope? That's what it means to wait for God. It is to wait for God with hope, to look toward the horizon that on the fifth day, the dawn is coming. The God who loves you is coming to you. He stands ready and waits to be gracious to you. And God's solution was not an earthly king. It wasn't a successful guru. It wasn't five steps to a better whatever. It was a baby in a manger. Unto us a child is born. 
Israel waited for this Messiah. The Messiah has come, and now we wait for His return to give us our hope eternal. And so let's wrap up this morning by looking at how Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Again, the key word here we see in verse 18 is to wait. We see God is waiting. We're called to wait. What's the difference between the two? How does God wait versus how do we wait? Well, God's waiting is actually his patience with us. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We see the, the graciousness and the patience of God who waits and is eager to be gracious to us because at any moment, God could have said, I'm done with them. I mean, if you look at the Bible, it's just the Old Testament is just the people of God messing up over and over again. And at any moment, God could have said, that's the last straw. I'm done. No more. Forget it. No more second chances. Because it became very clear that they were just going to keep rebelling. They were, they were never going to just get it right. There's never going to be another admonition that was finally the one that was going to make them just get right. My dad, when I was a little kid, always used to say, 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 stand up and fly right. I don't know what that meant, but that was always his way of saying, get it together. They were never going to fly right. They, they were never going to, to get it together. And what I would do if someone continued to do that to me is I would write them off and I would have done it a long time ago. They had a million chances and we're asking for chance one million and one. And you and I, if we had an infinite number of chances, we'd ask for simply one more. But instead, instead of just asking them to get it right, God stands at the ready, eager to be gracious. And we see that he was eager to be gracious, waiting to be gracious at just the right time. And we see that the way to his graciousness is that he exalts himself to show mercy to you. Jesus was exalted to show you mercy, but we need to see that before Jesus was exalted, he first experienced humiliation. He, he, he humbled himself. Philippians 2, have this in mind among yourselves, which is, is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he, he, he humbled himself, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed him on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before Jesus was exalted, he was humbly born to a teenage virgin in a tiny little podunk town in the middle of nowhere. He experienced a very humble and simple life. He died on a very humble cross for you, and he rose again exalted so that you could receive mercy. That he stands at the ready to give you grace and to give you compassion. And what we see is that because he's exalted, because he's moved up to his rightful place over all things where every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord. He is wonderful enough to give you counsel. He is wonderful enough to tell you how to live your life and that every other way that contradicts that's just going to lead to death. And it shows you how you can wait and how this leads to blessing. 
Ray Ortland says that we wait for him in faith, in openness, in humility, confident that his timing is right, his methods are wise, and so forth. The Lord is a God of justice. He's faithful when you and I are faithless. He's wise and just when you and I are foolish and selfish, and you can trust him that according to his counsel, according to his, his purposes, he's going to work all things out because he's a just God. So, so when God's not working out things as quickly as you like, you can trust the fact that he's just. When, when God's not working out things the way that you would like, you can trust that he is just. And what this does as you wait is it frees you from fear, it frees you from despair, it frees you from anxiety because you learn to wait on the one who came and who's coming again. We see firstly, he's ready to give grace. Secondly, he responds to humble prayer. Verse 19, for a people shall dwell in Zion and Jerusalem, you shall weep no more. That is one of the most comforting promises in all of scripture. There will never be another tear. There will be no more weeping. I've said multiple times at this point in life, I'm a giant baby. Having daughters has messed me up. I have, there's, there's lots of reasons to cry. I went for like a 10 year period before kids. I didn't cry about anything. Um, and so I, I cry at everything now. And there's lots of reasons in this world to cry. At death and sickness, it's a reason to cry. At, at war and injustice is a reason to cry. The loss of a season of life is a reason to cry. The New England Patriots are a reason to cry. Jesus came so one day that you would never have another reason to cry. That there would be no more depression and anxiety, no more tears over war and racism, no more death, no more suffering, no more aimlessness, no more sin. And this is why you can cry out to God with hope because he will wipe away every tear. And he says here that he surely, he will be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. He hears your cries. The God who reigns over all things hears you when you cry out in loneliness. He hears you when you cry out in sadness or fear or anger, and he knows the sound of your cry. When my kids were little, they could have been in a sea full of other children. If one of them fell down and began to cry, I knew it was them because I was attuned to their tears. Jesus understands and he knows your tears. He hears it and he answers. Often a sign that you've lost hope is that you've stopped praying because you don't believe God is listening anymore. And I want you to know that God is listening and he hears your cries. What would you pray for if you ho could hope again? What would you pray for if you believed that God heard your cries? Jesus is a wonderful counselor who redeems your affliction. And he does this by giving you himself. This is one of these verses, verse 20, that kind of stops you in your tracks. It says, and though the Lord gave, or and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, that the Lord gives it. That, that, that's one of those verses you got to stop and, and turn around in your mind and go, wait a minute. So there's adversity in my life and there's affliction in my life and there's, there's consequences in my life that, that God has given me. Sometimes it's, it's the type that comes from the consequences of your own sin and thinking you're wise on your own. It's like a child learning a lesson. I, I was three years old and my parents kept telling me, don't go touch the car door, don't try to pull the car door, because it was like a 1984 Ford LCD and that, that thing was like made out of steel. It's like the type of stuff they've made mousetraps out of now. Like that, I mean, it was, it was hard to pull. 
and I can't, wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, went over and put my hand in there and got my hand stuck and pinched in the door handle. And I'm wailing bloody murder, and my mom comes over, and she pulls my hand out, and, and, and in my own wisdom, I decide I'm going to show them how I got my finger stuck, got, just got my finger stuck again. In, in the same way, sometimes we learn the consequences of our sinful choices and, and dumb decisions. God uses those to show us something. Sometimes we just experience adversity and affliction because we live in a broken world. And sometimes I don't know why we do, but God does. There's times when God allows hardship and there's time when God allows pain. And it's not because he doesn't care, but actually we see it's because he loves us. Hebrews 12 is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or, or daughters For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness." For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Discipline doesn't always have to be negative. Discipline can be corrective. It can be focusing. You and I, by default, are trained to look to ourselves and our own schemes and our own plans and our own wisdom. And what our affliction and adversity that the Lord brings into our lives does is it does two things. One is it causes you to look to Jesus. Verse 20, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. What if the things that, are, that God has allowed to come into your life are actually just simply a means to make you look at him? To make you look away from yourself and to look to the one who loves you and who came for you and is waiting to give you grace and compassion. It, it trains us to look to him. And it says one thinker said that even in affliction, he, God, is the dearest gift. But the second thing it does is it trains us to listen to his voice. Verse 21, it says, And your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Basically, wherever you go. And I would be remiss to miss this opportunity to talk about the Mandalorian. I think you are Mandalorian fans. But there's this part in the Mandalorian, Nerdy Sunday, I told you, Star Wars. There's the, the Mandalorian, Boba Fett, that guy, the, the mask, and, the, and he flies around anyway. Uh, if you hadn't watched it, that's a very short synopsis. Uh, but the Mandalores were a group of people who had this code, and their code was summed up in the words, this is the way. This is the way. In other words, this is how we live. This embodies what we believe. And what Jesus tells you is this is the way to wisdom. This is the way to life. The counsel I give you is meant to lead you to hope. And it only comes through trusting him. Then you even see that in in adversity, this is the way. And when there's a voice behind you, that voice behind you, if you're walking down a dark alley, if you hear a voice behind you, it's either terrifying or comforting. If you hear an unfamiliar voice behind you in the alley, you just tense up and you want to run. But what if you heard the most comforting voice you've ever heard standing right behind you? It would fill you with joy and hope in that moment. Jesus calls out to you in the darkest moment, and he says, this is the way. This is the way to hope. This is the way to life. And if you continue on in this passage, you see that 
God's people are going to eventually put away their idols. There's going to be this abundance in the land, uh, that there's going to be the renewal of all things. And we're not going to see all of that until one day when Jesus returns. And so what you and I have to do is we have to learn to wait. And so as we close, just three, three ways that we learn to wait. Number one is through praying and reading God's word. As, as we read God's word, it attunes us to the promises of God, and we learn to hope in them. And as we pray those, God begins to shape us and teach us how to wait. Secondly is to be still and rest in that hope. So instead of, so instead of looking to our own schemes and always running from one place to the other to try to figure out what to do, we just sit still long enough to stare at God and his promises. And then thirdly, we act in faith on that hope. there's times where you're going to have to make a decision. There's times where you're going to have to to do things in faith, and we do so with hope that our God is going to return. And so this, this Christmas season, this Advent season, let us be a people who learn to wait with hope for our God who stands ready to be gracious to us. Let's pray.